The Green Sundays are primarily about the nature, the cost, and the ways and the means of Christian discipleship. And today, the focus uh, in terms of understanding discipleship has to do with the creation, preservation, and nurture of right relationship. The reading from the book of Job is about how Job, at, at the present moment in the, right, in the reading, perceives his relationship with God, and thereby the question is raised, how do we understand our own relationship with God, and what kind of a God is it that we seek a relationship with? And in the reading from the Gospel according to St. Mark, we have a Gospel about how we relate to our stuff. I, I feel duty-bound to preach on the, on the book of Job. We so seldom read it, and uh, it appears in many ways still to me to be a book that is absolutely baffling. I mentioned to you we'll be reading from Job for the next couple, two, three more weeks, and today we're in the second installment of Job, and Job today is talking about the absence of God. So by extension, it raises for us the question, you know, how do, how do we believe God is present to us, or do we? My own personal experience, and certainly my experience as a pastor, is that uh, most of us don't think a lot about whether God is present until we think he ought to be present front and center immediately in the midst of all of the difficulties and the conundrums and the problems that we're facing at the present moment. And if God isn't there and doesn't answer these questions immediately, then we believe keenly that it can't be a, a very uh, important God that we believe in, or maybe we really should do what we always do, the fallback position, and that is live according to our own lights and in fact believe that it is all up to us in the end. So we have today... Job squaring the compass. As one biblical commentator said, he's searching everywhere, searching the world, and he simply cannot find God. He wants to find God, and he wants God to be present, but for Job in this particular situation, it's because he wants to defend himself and justify himself and to ask God why he has, is in this difficulty. Remember last week what we've done here in the reading. We've had the opening chapter where this cruel joke is played on Job by God in a wager with Satan to see whether or not he will curse God and so God afflicts him in every possible way. And this week, we have fast-forwarded 22 chapters to chapter 23. And what has happened in those other chapters is that various friends, colleagues, associates of Job have come by to see him in his wretchedness and have tried to reason with him, bargain with him, give him advice, tell him, I told you so, whatever it is that they do 
And so that has happened up to now. So the next couple of chapters, at least, we're going to have an extended discourse by Job. And then the shortest man in the Bible will return, Bildad the Shuhite. And he will uh, talk with Job about what it is that he thinks is the presenting problem. Now, now what's happened here, of course, is this. Job can't find God. He believes God is hidden from him and absent. And he's not a little bit anxious about this. In fact, he's terrified so if we were to say to ourselves, how in the world are we going to use this reading? Well, it must have something to do with how you and I feel about the presence of God or the absence of God, whether God hides from us, whether God can hide from us, how we make sense of all this. So when I read this, I thought to myself, you know, if I were somebody in, the, in Western Christianity who read the book of Job let's say in the Middle Ages or in the, in, in the Reformation period, during the Counter-Reformation, maybe I would look at it and say, this has something to do with the spiritual life. What kind of a, a life do we feel we should live in relationship to God, if any? Right? Now, I should explain to you that there are, uh, there's a wide swath of Christianity uh, in the world, certainly since the Reformation period, that believe that uh, having a spiritual life, pursuing a spiritual life, believing in the value of a spiritual life is really not very important because it could be construed and understood as a work. And if you believe that you are saved only by your faith, and nothing that you do, it is risky at best to uh, engage yourself in some way of putting into your hands practices which may help mature your spirit. Remember, I say to you over and over again that the spiritual life is life. Body, soul, mind, spirit given to God in love. And so by virtue of that, don't you think it would be a good idea to practice some degree of excellence in the way you seek to be wiser, more compassionate, a better human being, fill out more fully the promises of God being made in God's image? Don't you think that's a good plan? And you know what? There are some things you can do, some ways that you can put into your hands certain practices which may make it at least a little easier to understand Job's predicament because you've had the same predicament in big and small ways and you're seeking to find some way to maintain the non-anxious presence. How are you going to do this? Now I've talked to you before about in our tradition as Episcopalians or in the Anglican tradition we have had two distinct threads of spiritual understanding that have moved through our 500-year history because we have been influenced by both 
the Reformation on the continent of Europe, and by the Catholic tradition, which we believe we have retained, not only in our polity, but in our theological outlook, and where we look for places of authority in our great tradition. And the first thread, my teacher Urban Holmes, I'm uh, or indebted to him for, for speaking uh, about this originally when I was a student, is what he called pietism. It is the belief in the need for a felt experience of the presence of God to know that you are on the right track. It's in the old language was called the consolation. How would we understand that? Well, it, maybe an American way of explaining that would be to be born again or to experience some species of conversion a change of heart. And the other tradition that has been part of our way of being is what he, it's an unfortunate term in many ways, uh, called mysticism, which is the understanding that you and I, in our own relational life, right relationships, one with another, in our primary relationship with God, in our relationship with our own internal demons and ways of thinking and being uh, a self, we have uh, developed the, the movement towards God. And it involves doing some things. And here they are, there are five of them. Purgation, emptying, study, discipline, patience. The first two are inside baseball terms. Purgation means to purge from your ways of being and relating those habits that keep you from being centered in God, keep you from being focused, keep you from pursuing excellence, keep you from being the best human being you can be made in God's image and likeness. Emptying is the slow, steady cultivation of the ability not to be distracted. And all of us in this culture struggle minute by minute on a daily basis with being distracted, with the velocity of life. We even justify it and give names for its overweening presence in some people's life, like adult attention deficit disorder. Right? Oh, you mean all my life that's why I have the fidget? I guess that's going to explain why I'm not able to rise to the occasion today. You know, I don't want to throw cold water on this in absolute terms, but you know. Right? So how do we deal with the issues of being distracted? Study is to be the best student of the things you need to be the best student of in order to function at the highest level. If you're in, in your career, it means you need to keep up, you know. I hope all of you, like me, uh, earnestly believes and hopes that when I visit the doctor, that she is kept up. She knows what the latest deal is in a way that might help me. So we need to keep up. We need to be students. 
You need to be a student of all the things you do for your avocations, for the things that interest you, that provide recreation, to be a good student of your hobbies. You know, you never know what might happen when you do that. If you decide to switch careers, it turns out you may have learned something doing all that that'll be useful. So study is an important thing. Discipline is the cultivation of the interior self-regulation necessary to, re to, to meet the demands and the opportunities that are in front of you on a daily basis. And you know, I said this at 9 o'clock, I, I have to get up, on, David Brewer has to get up on a daily basis and resist mightily falling into curmudgeonism in this culture. There is a huge amount of cluelessness, big time, clueless. Nobody knows where anything came from anymore. It's all right now, you know. I listen to people on CNN read the news. They don't even know how to use the syntax of the English language properly often, right? I never thought I'd say this to you. It's like my parents were like this. They were always correcting everybody's English on the TV, right? But you know, it's become a big problem, not a little problem. And it's a complete disinterest in, the, in history or how we got here from there and what value that might be to help us uh, be better people and not have to live in the past. You know, we don't believe as Episcopalians in traditionalism. We believe in the tradition, the thing that is handed on that is lively, that gives life to the things that we do, not just doing it because it's been done that way before. And it's an important distinction to make, and there's no consideration of that in many circles these days. Nobody knows from nothing, right? Look at the TV. Look at what's on. There was a show. I saw this show for five minutes. Nancy was at some meeting or something. I was, you know, doing this, the guy going like this. Real Housewives of Atlanta. Good night, nurse. We have reached the nadir of civilization. You know, I really have to work on myself in this regard, not to let it get my goat. It's horrendous, absolutely horrendous. So, you know, in some ways, exercising uh, self-discipline is an important thing. Self-discipline is to, is to moderate instinctual drives in order to meet the demands and the opportunities in front of you. And finally, the fifth one is patience. Knowing that this happens in God's time and not your own. That you need on a daily basis to engage in these things. Now what happens is you slowly begin to discover the presence the presence of a God who knows you, loves you, accepts you, and forgives you unconditionally. In the classic spiritual life, there's another way to talk about this. It's the threefold way, purgative, illuminative, unitive. And what we're talking about, why I belabored this, is that where Job is today is in a place that some may have described, certainly beginning in the 16th century, as the dark night of the soul. 
And the dark night of the soul is the process by which you come to some illumination about God's purpose as you go through it. The great writer about the dark night of the soul, John of the Cross, the great Spanish mystic, said for him the dark night of the soul was being in the presence of a brightness so bright that he had to close his eyes like this and it was dark until the illuminative processes of God showed him now who he was and what he must do. And this is what's going to happen with Job. We'll read a good conclusion about Job in the, at the end of the cycle we're reading of Job. Do you know there are actually some biblical commentators who had hoped that this didn't have a good outcome? That we would all be sitting and reading about somebody marinating in his suffering. Do you know anybody like this? Is this some crazy description that's only in the Bible? I think not. And all of us are capable of indulging that from time to time or more than we would like on a regular basis. So this is something about knowing that the mystery of God is not just an unknowable, the unknowable aspects of God, but it's about the infinite possibility to know. In the Gospel reading, we have a fairly well-known story. Actually, there are a number of them are, are sayings of Jesus. I'm not going to say too much to you about the eye of the camel going through the eye. You know, don't... That people have tried to give all kinds of explanations to that. It means what it says. You know, there's no use trying to say something else about it. But for my purposes, it's the opening uh, part of the gospel that is the most important, and that is the story of the rich young man. Here's a young man who goes to Jesus and he asks the Savior, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus uh, recites the commandments. You notice that he must have rattled them off by memory. He didn't get all of them, but he got most of them in there. And he says, you must obey these commandments. And this guy says, well, I have all my life since I was a youth. I've kept them. And Jesus says, well, you lack one thing. You need to go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And so this guy, it says, was shocked and grieving. And he went away because he had many possessions. Now, when I was writing my sermon, I, I, I read a commentary about this passage. And I thought, I'm just going to read it to you because it says it better than I can. Jesus is not adding anything to be done by a man who has been doing his religion since his youth. On the contrary, Jesus is calling him to cast aside all other dependencies and in radical trust stand bare before the God who gives. In other words, this is a call to discipleship. There is here no praise of poverty or an attack on the wealthy. The world's goods can be passed around, 
without love or trust in God, and many plans for such have been devised. But here stands a person whose life has been defined by wealth, and sadly he will not accept a new definition of himself, a man rich before God. In a very rare use of the word love in Mark, the writer says Jesus loved him. The man asked a big question, and he got a big answer. Small answers to ultimate questions are insulting. He was allowed to say no to Jesus, where there is no room to say no, a yes is meaningless. So it wasn't just the stuff. You know, I in this culture, I think most of us find ourselves in one way or another in, in this position. It's like the studies that have been done where the monkey reaches into a jar to get the nut and the monkey gets the nut and then realizes he can't get his hand out of the jar unless he lets go of the nut. When I was a kid, about 11, I was at my grandparents' house and I was doing the dishes. And my grandmother had one of those old percolator coffee makers, you know, that comes up like this, had the spout that went like this. And I had my hand inside the coffee pot, and I was washing the inside of the coffee pot. And as I pulled my, I couldn't get my hand out of the coffee pot. And I turned to my grandfather with the coffee pot on my hand. I said, I can't get, he said, you know what, David? Maybe you're going to have to be that way for the rest of your life. So here we are with our hand in the jar around the nut. So are we going to stay like that all the time? Or what are we going to do? And you know, this nut isn't just material stuff. It's the whole web of, of power and prestige and mobility and uh, clout and all kinds of stuff that attach to economic prosperity. You know? Every one of us should use to the highest and fullest extent our entrepreneurial abilities and our talents in order to be successful. And the Savior never once jumps on anybody who is a success. But what does get jumped on is how we think about what we have, what we do with what we have, and what we think we ought to tell others about what it is. In other words, the spiritual life may have something to do with the cultivation of generosity. And the generous impulses, which are natural to every human being, often get pushed down in a culture that becomes too self-aggrandizing and measures one another based on material gain. You know, this is said a lot. It's easy to say and hard to do, but it's very important because it connects to the deep things of the spiritual life. I realized, of course, that oh, here this reading has occurred and it's stewardship time in the church, isn't it? So this may have something to do 
with uh, how we use our resources and the generous impulse. So this week, give thanks for a God who is not capricious, who knows, accepts, accepts, and forgives you unconditionally, and who is present to you even at times when you can't realize it. See if you can have uh, take the opportunity to uh, use some of the things on the mystical journey to uh, give you a little bit uh, greater ability to be non-anxious. And finally, maybe this week, see if it becomes a little easier to possibly let go of the nut. Amen.